Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 27 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Amit Singh. Amit is the head of global policy at Uber responsible for economic policy, future of work, and digital marketplaces. He's based in San Francisco and has previously served as the Senior Economic Advisor to Australian Prime Ministers Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard and Deputy Chief of Staff and Head of Policy to the Leader of the Opposition, Bill Shorten. Earlier in his career, Amit worked as Capital Markets Lawyer and a Corporate M&A Advisor, as well as co-founder of a consumer startup that has grown to over 315,000 members and co-founder of Tuxedo Tuesday with Fitted for Work, an initiative to promote the economic participation of women. Amit is a director of the Chifley Research Centre and a member of OECD's Future of Work Engagement Group. He's delivered papers on the future of work at the ILO and leading think tanks around the world and teaches a class on trust and technology at Oxford. He's also a strategic advisor to a number of early stage startups. That's a very impressive bio. Uh, welcome to the show, Amit. Um, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. This is my first <laughs> podcast experience, so I'm very excited, um, very excited to be here. So thanks for asking me. Wonderful. And as I said to you before we started recording, you're, you're very humble because I read that bio and there was I didn't know about 90% of those things despite having spent five days with you last week. So it's, it's an incredibly impressive career to this point and I'm looking forward to learning more about it. What I want to start with, I think your role would um, be fairly new to a lot of people um, in terms of what you do at Uber, being the head of global policy responsible for the future of work. So could we start by you explaining what that role entails and sort of starting to, to get into what the future of work means to Uber? So I think, I think that that's a really interesting question. I think one of the things that... Um, one of the things that's really sort of um, difficult about the future of work is that the future of work actually means a lot of things to a lot of people. And the future of work, in fact, can actually include things like how I work today. And the fact that when I started, I was thinking about this, um, I was thinking about this earlier today. When I started work, I, I hadn't heard of these things called Slack and Salesforce, and I've had to learn them in the course of doing my work. So the future of work, in a sense, is a misnomer because actually it's really the present of work and the way in which we all change the way in which we work today. Um, what's kind of interesting is that the future of the way in which we work, though, is being driven by multiple sort of really large trends. Yeah, I mean, the first big sort of trend um, in our kind of lifetimes was the sort of what was the kind of globalization of work, or at least the nature of the way in which we worked across different um, uh, dif- um, different um, times, uh, different time spheres, and different sort of um, uh, geographies. Then there's the sort of this kind of notion of the atomization of work, or at least work basically being broken down into kind of different kind of categories. And then, then I think um, then I think the one that we are all really looking at and sort of with with a kind of sense of dread is this kind of notion of the automation of work. 
And the truth is the automation of work has really happened, um, has really been going on for a long time. In fact, the automation of work has been, by and large, a very positive thing in the nature of our quality, our quality of work. You know, in fact, automation has made it safer for us to work in so many fields that were previously very, very dangerous. Um, um, but what we, what I think we're all sort of wondering is what does, what do new technologies, what do things like AI and machine learning, what do things like neural networks and things like that have an impact on the way in which we work? The reason why Uber's interested in this world is because we kind of are involved effectively in each of those sort of three main strands, but especially in the last two, which is effectively the move towards different people working in different ways today in terms of working in sort of more granular kind of task-based sort of work. And then in the future, the nature of how people will work in interaction with um, with other types of sort of automated technologies like self-driving cars and what does that mean for the nature of the way in which we think about work today. So that's sort of the, the, the interest in it. The way we think about it is more from a, not just from a um, policy perspective, but we also think about it from a research perspective. How do we create a body of research and build a body of evidence to then build a policy framework around that? And how do we do that in a way in which it's constructive, not just for how we see the world and how we see um, policy making in general, but that we sort of, um, that, that we think about in the context of um, ensuring innovation, which is obviously a business um, business objective. Yeah, wow, that's that's super interesting. So, in terms of the background to this at Uber, at what point did Uber recognise that the future of work was something that they needed to consider? So that um, it's really interesting because actually, when I um, I didn't really um, um, when, when I started, it was kind of an interesting thing because it was like this kind of push again at thinking about this question around the future work and getting sort of very deep on it. But in fact, actually, when it started as a business, one of the big kind of propositions it had was this notion that you could effectively earn when you wanted and earn in a kind of a uh, very different sort of fashion, you know, that you'd basically come on and come off. And that was a unique, uh, unique proposition. In fact, for a long time, this notion of being your sort of self-starter and your entrepreneur was a really big aspect of um, big aspect of this. And I think it sort of drifted for a few years and they've kind of come back. What I think is interesting about it though is that when the business started, um, when the business started, it was actually trying to effectively use a radically different way in which you thought about work. And then it was trying to fit into an existing policy framework that effectively only chose one or two paths, uh, like well, one path or another path. And I think what's happened over time is that there's become more of this acceptance that actually neither of those paths is actually is the right approach. And really, in fact, the best way is to try and sort of craft something that fits both the objective of the type of work that you're doing and the way in which you do it. Um, so when did it come to it? I think it probably, it probably always had it because there's two sides to the marketplace. There's the drivers and the riders. But I think it sort of has, um, in the last few years, um, redoubled its efforts to try and sort of solve some of these challenges. Yeah, because I guess Uber's very existence is is an example of the future of work, and and sort of the casualization of the workforce, but also the emergence of a flexible economy. And I think when we talk about the future of work, um, I'm definitely guilty of jumping straight to AI and thinking, you know, ten years from now, what are you going to do with the potentially millions of drivers globally that, that will be out of a job. But really, the future of work is so much broader than that, isn't it? Yeah, um, it, um, it really is. And, and some days I sort of, some days I even, 
um, maybe it's the kind of um, Australian sort of self-deprecation, but every once in a while someone says to me, oh, what do you think is the future of work? And it's like, it's in my job title and I don't really fully understand it myself. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, because, because, I think, because I think the way in which people are working is, is so different, right? Um, uh, uh, if you think about it, this, this kind of trend towards casualization or this trend, to, trend away from full-time work has probably been a positive thing for a bunch of people that have been completely disengaged from the labor market. So it's actually allowed, um, it's allowed, um, uh, you know, to, to use a very specific business example, and now I'm kind of sounds like I'm sort of shilling for my, um, um, my company. But um, we have this very specific product on, um, on enabling people that are hard of hearing, deaf or hard of hearing, from being able to actually use the platform to earn money. And we created a special product within the app that actually allows people to do that. The un unemployment and underemployment rate for those that are deaf or hard of hearing in the United States is about 80%, right? So um, it's actually like a it's, it's such a big number that I had to check that it was even true, mm -hmm. right? Um, but the point about it was that it was actually allowed, it allowed a whole bunch of people that were completely, totally disengaged from the labor market to get into it. But at the same time, it has a, has a sort of negative consequence because for people that have then traditionally worked or were traditionally going to work in a sort of full-time job, um, that may mean that they don't get as many hours or they don't get as much income as they could from this kind of casualization. Now, that's not an Uber phenomenon. It's an economy-wide phenomenon, but it is the sort of flip side of this. It's a very interesting thing that I was looking at the other day where in the 19 – sort of at the um, beginning of the um, – at the beginning of the 1980s, about – um, about 85, it was, I think it was 83% of the Australian population that were in the labor force basically worked full time. And that today it's about, it's under 70%. And the thing is that that period has sort of coincided with effectively what we've, what a whole bunch of different people have talked about as like an income or like kind of, kind of a wages sort of, um, or a wages slowdown. And sort of it's, that, that's a sort of interesting dynamic about how this shift towards, as you said, the casualization has a kind of negative side as well. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And to me that seems like a developed country phenomenon. Like because yeah. the norm for us has historically been access to full-time employment and now that has been changing and now our our working style uh, and the availability of work is more casual. But conversely in developing countries in my view the casualization of the workforce has has always existed you know the informal right. economy is what up to 80 percent of the workforce in some developing countries are involved in so in when you're talking about the future of work how does your approach change for developed versus developing countries and you may reject that binary fully i have plenty of guests who don't who don't agree with the developing developed country split but you know how do you work differently in countries with a much lower socioeconomic um makeup um so so we're interesting as a tech company in general because um and, and we've had to learn this lesson the hard way is that we're a tech company in many senses you use an app it basically is a app that effectively has the same te technology backend regardless of where you are around the world. It looks and feels the same way. One of the great advantages of it is that if you get off in an airport in, um, if you get off in an airport in Nairobi or you get off in an airport in Amsterdam, you're using the same app. You don't have to reinstall and all that sort of stuff. You pay with the same thing. So all those things are global. But one thing that is really interesting is that we've had to operate in each of our local markets very differently, right? And and that kind of like online offline thing is a really interesting dynamic for a policy person. 
it's actually the most interesting part about working for um, a tech company. I think it's fun and games to play in the cloud, but like it's actually when you actually have to talk to people and have to deal with them. That's what that's that's when you really get the, like the rubber hits the road. Um, what is what is interesting is that we have to design things to fit the local markets in which we operate, right? And that's not a um, and it and it, and it very much depends on the nature of the economy in which we op- you operate. As you get bigger and as you meet, get more scale, you begin to reflect some of the good and the bad parts of those economies, and you have to think about them very carefully. We have different products to meet different socioeconomic needs in different um, in different uh, markets. You know, so for example, you have Boda Boda in um, sub-Saharan Africa, which is basically a um, a smaller vehicle, an easier way to basically get around the city. It's much cheaper. Um, you have things like um, you have things like um, uh, you have things like <laughs> you have Uber boat in Croatia because you know like if you're on a Croatian holiday you want a boat or like yeah. I don't really know why but wow. you do right um, so the point is like they are different modes of transport but what you, but your question is actually a very important question about the kind of what I think is um, the potential for the potential to use effectively a global platform to lift standards as well as to moderate things, right? And so what, what I mean by that is access to work has kind of always been a big issue, um, has always been a big issue regardless of where you where you look. But it's been particularly a big issue, access to sort of, um, access to earnings in a way in which you control it as a worker has been particularly um, less available in, um, less available in, um, in say, um, in, in economies that aren't, I mean, economies that aren't, well-developed, right? Like um, if you want to use that kind of construct. And so what's been really interesting is the nature of the way in which it's allowed people to get into work. So we've seen um, uh, we've seen very positive results in terms of women in Africa being able to sort of get into the, get into work through use of the platform like this. And because it's a formalized, um, it's a formalized system, you know, you earn how much you earn, you basically goes into your bank account. There's a sort of some degree of accountability. It's actually an easier, it's an easier system to be able to, to, to do that. But what's interesting is that um, as we've gone and expanded around the world, we've then been able to set sort of certain standards about how we do that. And one really interesting ex- um, area is this kind of notion of social protections. So the way in which work has always, work has always been associated with some, some kind of social protection framework. So some way in which you think about um, uh, when, when, when I'm injured at work, I, should, I ought to be protected. You know, when I'm working and if I'm sick, I ought to be able to Get some form of um, some form of income protection. I mean, if I'm if I've been working for very many years, I should get rewarded for my effort and be able to get some form of dignified retirement. You know, um, if there's some kind of catastrophic injury in the course of my things, even my death, then my family should be protected. Those types of kind of notions have always sort of existed in work. We made probably a mistake. We made a mistake as a company at the start. We didn't acknowledge that upfront, and I think we've done under our. Under the new CEO, we've done a, um, a much better job of acknowledging that. But what's really been interesting is that then trying to apply that standard across the world means you do a lot of very creative things. You know, so for example, um, we've been able to extend this kind of notion of injury protection at work, right? Not just in our bigger, more developed markets. So this is available all throughout Europe, but we've also been able to extend it all through Africa, all through India, um, all through Pakistan, all through LATAM. Um, in fact, some of the places that have been harder to get these done in are probably more developed countries. So it's actually not available in some states in the U.S. on a kind of blanket basis, but it is available in um, Uganda and in Kenya and in some other parts of Africa. 
That's so interesting. Do, do you think it's because the regulatory structures are weaker in those developing countries and therefore it's easier to get things I don't, through? I, I wouldn't characterize it as being weaker. I think it's, I think that it's, um, I, I wouldn't characterize it as being a weaker structure. I, I think it's actually, it's a structure that's designed to meet a particular purpose. I think it's probably more, more interested in actually solving for the needs of individuals. Um, and, and and of the affected population than it is um, than the way in which it's, you, you sort of um, deal with it. I think the other thing, like the fundamental difference, I think, is that one one um, sees the sort of enforcement of, or at least the application of um, things in the context of welfare as being something that's done between the state, between business, and between individuals, and one sees it as basically between individuals and some other actor, be it the state or business. Right. Okay. So, so one of the things that's come out of the Royal Commission here in Australia is acknowledging vulnerable customers yep. and acknowledging when particular customers have various, of you know, you could do an intersectional look at that and say yep. there are people that for multiple coexisting factors are more vulnerable than others. Now, looking at Uber's workforce globally um you would say that some of the drivers in developing countries are particularly vulnerable if uber if you know if uber is supporting their entire family um if there aren't any welfare schemes that they can access uh for a number of reasons those drivers are are more at risk to changes such as ai so you and i have spoken about safety nets in the past um how you know, what is the approach building upon what you've just spoken about with things like injury cover and maternity leave and things? What sort of safety nets is Uber creating around the more vulnerable drivers? Uh, uh, that's a really good question. I think the I, I sort of started by talking about how when we first started as a business, we basically um, we basically adopted globally this kind of notion of everybody working as a independent contractor. That remains the case, and that is the most that is the best fit for the nature of how people work in this particular way. But I think the problem with it is that it's actually it does a disservice to the people that are working. Right? Um, I think the whole notion of the existing way in which we've thought about work and employment and all the different types of legal structures have, in effect, not really modernized with the way in which people work and 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 the nature of how people work. And I think really what people want is they want a modicum of sort of security and a modicum of flexibility. And there's varying trade-offs between the two. Um, but by and large, you should be able to get both. You know, I mean, I don't think that – I think that this idea that there is an absolutist kind of notion that you get one or the other is kind of um, – isn't, isn't really a good characterization of what you're, trying to, what you're trying to sort of achieve. I think the idea, though, so, so if you accept that this idea that um, whichever way in which you work will have a basic level of security and a basic level of flexibility, and when I mean flexibility, I really mean it in a, um, I really mean it in a much more, um, much more broad sense than the way in which people think about it. I mean it in the context of you having control and self empowerment and self determination in a sense, right? I. I do my work, I choose to do my work, I choose the nature in which I do my work and I ensure that I have a certain degree of control in the exercise of that work. Now, if I work as an employee, I have a certain degree of choice in that. You know, I have the choice to be able to um, exercise certain rights. If I'm an independent contractor, I have a choice to not do that work. The security aspect is that if things go bad, if the vicissitudes of life catch up with me, right, I have protection. Um, and that should be the case whether I'm 
an independent contractor or whether I'm an employee. And I think that's the, that's, so if you accept that that notion exists, right, that there's some security and some flexibility, then I think you've then got to think about what's the best, what's the most efficient and the best way of providing that security. And I think that, um, uh, I think that those things sort of vary as you, um, very depending on where you are in the course of your life, but also where you are in the course of an economy. Um, we think about that flexibility today as ways in which you, you basically protect yourselves for um, things that happen to you at work and things that happen to you in your life, right? Um, and, and, and if you kind of think about those things, about things that happen to you in your life, it's things that happen to your life today and things that happen to you, to you in your life in the future. And so as a result, it spits out basically these kinds of um, benefits and protections that people think about. It's like healthcare, it's things like injury at work, it's things like maternity and paternity leave, it's things like pay time off and things like what happens when you get sick and sick pay and it, then you think about things like retirement and all those types of things, right? Um, or if you, or, and in the most sort of grievous thing, death and disability, right? Um, so you think about all those different types of arrangements as things that you want or to get protected from. In the future, it'll be things like what if, what if there's a sort of loss of income as a result of my job changing so much that I don't have the skills to be able to adapt, right? What happens if I am a kind of a sort of um, an older person and what, what, what like and, and towards the end of my career and I don't really have the time to readjust or relearn how to use Slack or whatever the new fandangle thing is that at some point I won't be able to use, right? Um, and so, 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 so for those things, like there's a different type of transitional thing and there's varying opinions about what that could be, right? Like, is it basically a replacement payment? Is it a type of transitional thing? Is it something where we give you skills all the way through your life? So that's sort of an open and interesting debate and that's kind of what makes it interesting for all of us. So interesting. And Given that the uh, this flexible economy is is a global phenomenon, and um, which is particularly pertinent in developing countries, does it make sense to have universal basic income to protect all people? Like, where do you stand on the UBI debate? So I think I have a um, I'm generally pessimistic about this, but I kind of feel like I kind of feel like. Um, you should never be a policy person and be the person that stands against an idea because eventually every good, like every idea has its time. And so I, I can't remember who it was that said, I think it might've been like Robert Kennedy or maybe he was quoting someone else and said that there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come, right? And so, so I sort of, as a general rule, have learned that as a policy person, if you stand against a bunch of things, you'll eventually get caught. But I still, I still am willing to kind of go out there and say that I'm, I'm not very, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of its actual use. The reason why I am is, is this. Um, it basically provides too much help to people that don't need it and not enough help to people that do need it, right? And, and, and that's what I think is kind of like the essential problem with um, a universal basic income. I actually think it's a kind of fundamentally a resourcing problem about the way in which our economies are structured and it doesn't really achieve the results that, that, that you sort of want. And to be, to be frank, the places that they've tried to do the tests, I think they've kind of been, in a sense, unhelpful places because those economies have very particular structures. So trying it in Finland, like even though it didn't work out, was actually not the best place to try it because the Finnish economy is a very different and particular economy. The nature of the population is different because it's a much more homogenous population than sort of most other places. And it's sort of a hard thing to kind of um, get to. I think what is 
um, what is kind of interesting about it is, is, is kind of if you think about the broad analysis about what happens in the future and um, what happens in the future, even though automation and a lot of people um, say, and I believe this, that this time is different, right? The actual phenomena from a policy person's perspective is the same, right? Well, always largely the same. Fundamentally, what it is, is the economy in transition and what do we do about the transition, right? So a bunch of jobs will, when you get automation, a bunch of jobs will be created. There'll be a bunch of things that we've never heard of that will need to happen, right? A bunch of tasks will basically get automated. And that will be a good thing because they'll either become safer or because some of the things we get to do are really kind of annoying. Like it's very annoying for you to have to type all the time and it would be much easier to be able to tell someone to type with a degree of certainty. Siri is good, but not that great, right? And it will get better. Um, the problem will be that in this transition, it'll happen very quickly. So most people will be able to, most smart people like yourself, will be able to learn new skills, right? Um, but some people will not be able to do it because they just haven't learned how to learn or because they're at the low end of the skill spectrum. So they'll get caught out as the sort of tide comes in and out, they'll just basically be caught out. And so the question is, how do we help those people? And that's really the policy challenge. Now, really interestingly, McKinsey, McKinsey put out this report about automation in Australia. And basically what it kind of concluded was effectively there's like 44% of all our activities. Now, that's not McKinsey's done one, Google's done one, Alphabet's done another one. They're all basically get to somewhere between 40 and 60% of all our tasks will effectively change and we'll have to learn new skills. The endpoint conclusion is there's about basically about 15 to 20% of the, um, it's probably somewhere between 10 and 20%, it's probably at about 15% of people will effectively not be able to transition. And those are the people we need to take care of. So if you think about universal basic income, it takes care of 100% of the people and basically doesn't do a great job of 100% of the people. When really what you want to do is help the 15% of the people basically be able to shift either through targeted income support. So this is through the, through the payment system. And one thing that we have done well as a country is have a targeted pretty well-targeted kind of tax and transfer system. So how do we use that in a kind of relevant way to help th those particular people move, move from one place to another? Yeah, I think you've explained that really well. I also haven't seen any examples of UBI that I think are particularly impressive and generally for a similar reason. Generally because, like, I mean, at least in the countries that I've worked in, somewhere like Papua New Guinea, if you did a UBI... 6 million people out of the 7.1 million population are in remote regional highland exactly. areas. So how are you going to access them? They don't have bank accounts uh, a lot of the time. Um, similarly, when UBI was implemented in South Africa, the only reason that it was implemented there was to address the stigma associated with welfare. So it wasn't as a solution per se. It was because people who were on welfare were generally very socially isolated. And excluded, and so the South African government thought that by giving everyone the same welfare, that might help to alleviate that stigma. Now, I understand the motivation there. I, I don't know how it went in practice, and I don't know if they still do it. But again, not a compelling argument for UBI. I, I yeah, um, yeah. I think I, I I think I think the South African example is a particularly instructive one. I think. Um, about why so, so so i was i was finding it funny because whenever i find people that are proponents of ubi and i sort of say that if, if everyone that believed in ubi changed their thing and said a strong safety net and everyone that didn't believe in ubi changed their view and said that there should be sort of transitional support could we all basically agree with each other and i think i think we essentially could i think um 
it basically goes down to um, the efficiency of government argument as well. I think a lot of people that believe in a UBI think that ultimately this there can be huge efficiencies gained in the nature of how government operates. Unfortunately, I'm a big government um, guy, and um, I um, and, and I don't mean that as a size of government. I mean as a actor in sort of helping people, support, supporting people through the through the way in which they um, transition in the economy. So that's kind of where where, where we're at. It is an interesting debate. I don't know where this thing will go. No, neither do I. And I think based on what you've just said there, it sounds to me that you're a proponent of change from within rather than change from outside. Would you (laughs) agree with that assessment? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I didn't want. (laughs) So on that basis, Uber's shift um, in recent years and particularly with your new CEO towards embracing regulation as opposed to potentially trying to avoid regulation. Uh, First of all, that seems to me like it would suit your own values quite well, but can you also comment on why that is a shift that Uber has taken? Yeah, um, that that is a really good question. Uh, So so that is a really important sort of observation. I think one of the things that we made the mistake of, um, or at least um, one thing that I think is really important, is you should never, um, this this notion that... um, this notion that people in different aspects of the economy that have had their kind of boom years have thought that um, governments have had an inability to set standards have always been proven wrong. Sure, governments might take a little bit longer to get to get there, but when, when they, once they eventually get there, they, have, they do a pretty decent job of setting standards, right? You should never underestimate. The finance industry underestimated the ability of governments to set standards, right, for many, many years and kind of has now discovered that they can. The tech industry thought that for a long time and have now discovered they can. And it's not governments as like big G governments, it's small G governments, it's governments and the people that basically they represent, right, I have have always had the ability to set standards and, um, and I find it always quite curious how business continuously assumes that um, continuously underestimates their capacity to set standards. They might not do it as quickly as you think there is, but there's, that's only a false arbitrage because it's only for a short period of time. So I think that's one thing that's sort of very interesting. I think the other thing that's kind of, um, the other thing that's, I think, um, interesting is this kind of notion that um, a lot of the language around how these companies, and particularly companies coming out of Silicon Valley, have loved to talk about this notion of disruption. You know I mean, and this idea that we're not just dis- disrupting an industry, we're disrupting the entire way we, in which we think about something. And that's not, and they're learning the hard way that it's not really disruption, it's disruption in an industry, but it's actually modernization of a bunch of these types of standards, right? Um, uh, um, it's not really, you haven't changed the what, you've changed the how in which they get delivered. You know, um, uh, I think um, some of the friends in social media are learning that ethics is not really something that they invented five years ago. Ethics has existed since like the Greeks and, you know, I mean, and Kantian ethics has been with us for hundreds of years. Like we, uh, there is an ethical framework for dealing with the world. Um, you don't need to kind of reinvent it every time. Um, so, so, so I think this idea about modernization of regulation as opposed to disrupting it is really important. I think when we, when Uber started, and bear in mind that the company is only eight years old. I think it always thought about itself as a new and innovative player. It was trying to operate in a, in a very, um, in a very um, well-regulated, well, well, in a, so taxi regulation has existed for like 600 years, right? And some of it is kind of hilariously archaic. You know, there's things like these notions about how you might 
move from one carriage to another and like the nature of how it might work and all that. It's, it's actually quite fascinating. And it went from like one duke to another. And there's a whole like fantastic piece in NPR about like taxi regulation. It's literally like hundreds of years old and no one has ever bothered to try and fix it because every time they tried to fix it, they haven't actually done a great job of it. So when the tech industry comes in and is basically able to sort of disrupt that industry, it kind of does a good job, but it doesn't actually mean the regulatory framework kind of, um, the regulatory framework needed to be thrown out. It effectively meant the regulatory framework needed to be modernized. And that's kind of the key difference. I think now there's an acceptance that um, if you want to have a credible business going forward, build confidence and build trust in the business, you've got to be you've got to operate within a community standard. The best way of defining the community standard is by getting regulated. And that's kind of what we've done. Um, we've also seen us take that to um, take that to a new kind of level where we work with we work with certain cities and, and states. And in the event that something happens where it may be a difficult situation, I think we've been very clear about the fact that we want to be partners with those cities and governments and find a solution to those particular problems. Uber has, it's amazing to consider Uber is eight years old, but sort of the incarnations that Uber has already gone through yeah. in that time. It's pretty yeah. amazing. Um, it, it, it's very funny. It's very funny when you think about when you go and look at the pictures of the old app and it looks so funny compared to what you see today. And it's the, the subtle changes that happen. Some people, you know, ascribe a lot of, you know, um, uh, ill intent to the fact that they subtly, subtly changes over time, but it's actually huge the kind of differences that that, that have happened. Um, the biggest difference I think has also been the way in which it, the service across cities. So we talked a little bit about this kind of notion around the socioeconomic factors and the intersectionality of the whole um, operation. What's been really interesting is this idea of looking at how redline, like the whole concept of redlining across a different city and how different areas got service and didn't get service and how if you basically have an open marketplace and you allow, um, if you have an open marketplace and all you really are doing is matching one side of a market with another, so people willing to give rides and people willing to pay for trips, um, and how you can actually match that up across a whole city. And actually, it actually restores, in a sense, this idea that places are not structurally broken if you give people the ability to kind of um, access different things. What, like, it is, if you look at the growth of the business, what started essentially as a competitor to taxis has now become like a complement to public transport, right? And it's sort of an interesting thing to think about in that way. It is. And and speaking of complementarity, I'm interested in understanding the uh, the sort of nexus of the not-for-profit sector and Uber. Um, yeah. So we've spoken about this a little bit before, but, you know, there's many ways in which we've already touched on where Uber is interacting with some really pertinent social issues in the countries that you're working in. And I would say that uh, Saudi Arabia is is one of the most uh, pertinent examples of that. So could you talk a bit about Uber and Saudi Arabia and what's happened there? Yeah, so one thing that's been really interesting is how um, the use of effectively the kind of the advent of ride sharing in Saudi Arabia, and it's not just Uber, there's a bunch of different companies that operate there, um, has effectively um, over time kind of increased the comfort levels of um of the government to effectively enable, um, it, it wasn't, you know, it would be fanciful for me to say that ride sharing was a thing that enabled the government to make the decision about letting, um, giving people, giving women the ability to drive, but it was part of the kind of a set of contributing factors in a sense. 
And what, what's kind of been interesting, though, is that um, it's learning the cultural context. We talked about this at the start, about the con- cultural context of the place in which you operate, right? And um, just, 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 so, just because women can now drive, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually improved the ability of women to use a lot of these services. There are cultural factors um, involved in it. And what's been really interesting is that then thinking about ways uh, to solve that problem, you can't solve it through the app. Like as much as we'd like to tell people that you could solve it through the app, you, you really can't do that. Um, uh, you, we've had to basically form partnerships. And what we've got is we've got a partnership and a program called Mazaruki in um, Saudi Arabia. And what that does is it sort of aims to increase women's participation in the workforce more generally, right, through access to affordable transportation. And that's both in terms of increasing access to um, flexible work opportunities through the platform, but also um, but also ways in which they can use the platform in a way in which they feel is a reliable um, transportation option to allow them to take on more work. And so that's kind of been an interesting partnership. Um, we have other types of, um, one thing that's kind of interesting about where Uber is, is Uber's kind of like a, just a very big startup in a sense, right? And so it doesn't have giant CSR type of things. Like it's not, it doesn't do what JP Morgan does in cities, right? But instead what we try and do is try and do, have that social impact by by the um, by changing the actual like the entire experience. So, what is the experience of how we use how you use the app, how you use the um, how you use the um, the driver side of the app or the rider side of the app, and the experience that you get from it. So, you know, Mazaruki is one example in Saudi Arabia. Another example is the way in which we partner with Mothers Against Drink Driving in the United States, right? And so that's a partnership on. Um, how we think about like you know um, major events and being able to build awareness in major events and how we get drivers and riders to basically work on work on that side and so that's less about us directly in a sense funding things and more working in partnership to basically ensure that the things that we do are consistent with social objectives. Yeah, and what I really like about what you've said there is. Uber uh, ensuring alignment with social objectives is not just in the interests of people, but it's also in the interests of, of profits for Uber. Like it makes yeah. business sense for you to get behind these issues, right? It's not just about tokenistic CSR. It's actually profitable for Uber to take on issues like this. Yeah, I think it's... Um, uh, uh, I, I think one, one thing that, it, that is really interesting is like well, if you think about sort of the core like one of the core things that we want to do is we want to um, decrease people's reliance on personal car ownership, right? And you can only really do that if it's a reliable option. And you can only really do that if people think of it as a reliable option at certain points, right? So when you go out, when you have a night on the town, you know, it, it is helpful if you've kind of thought about it in that way. Now, um, uh, it is helpful when you think about it if you're trying to go to work and have it as a reliable option for being able to get to work. Um, and it is helpful when you think about it as an opportunity for, say, um, a part of the population that hasn't been able to get into work to be able to get into work. So if you think about, um, we've got this a great example of how um, people in the banlieues in Paris were not being able to get into work, and uh, like couldn't get access to work because they just didn't know anyone. And there was a, the French labor market has its own sort of peculiarities, right? And um, being able to have access to a platform that allowed people to come in actually created these opportunities and how that's kind of core to the experience. Yeah, of course. Now, you work out of San Francisco, but your work has a global focus. 
So you are sort of engaging with people in a number of countries, which would make cross-cultural dialogue quite important, (laughs) I imagine. Um, And two weeks ago, we both participated in the Australia-India Youth Dialogue, uh, which is a cross-cultural dialogue between um, delegates under the age of 40 uh, in Australia and India. So I'm I'm interested in what you took away from that and more broadly why practicing cross-cultural dialogue and cultural intelligence is important to you. So I think, I think the, I, I think the really interesting thing about, um, and I said this to you while we were doing this, the really interesting thing was the breadth of the breadth of things. Like we started the week talking about the differences between the two places. And then we ended the week realizing that our similarities were far bigger than we actually thought we had. You know, we complained about the same issues. We were socially, or we complained about the same issues as in, we were sort of frustrated by the amount of people that were like cared so much about social media and how our friends really didn't want to hang out with each other in a normal way. We were frustrated about the fact that there was inaction on climate change and on water security. We were um, interested in like going to the beach and surfing. Apparently surfing is a thing in India, right? You know, um, <laughs> um, uh, um, and um, like, I didn't know that. You know, and so, um, and so, um, and, and, and that there were ways in which, you know, we could cooperate on sort of the arts and the way in which um, that sort of mattered. I think what was, so I think that was kind of an interesting thing, but I actually think the thing that was really interesting about that whole week was this notion that um, we have always thought about economic relationships in particular, but also strategic relationships as something where great powers basically decide to do it. So governments or big businesses or um, institutions of established power basically decide that those things are important. And as as nations and as citizens, we basically fall, follow and pursue that. So it's a really important thing for us to have a relationship with North Asia. It's a really important thing to have these things. I think the India relationship is an interesting thing because it sort of feels like it's the one in which it will actually take off because of people power, right? It will take off actually because of like people, uh, people's shared co- and common understandings at a kind of bottoms up level, you know, like there are obviously great economic and strategic benefits in doing it, but it sort of feels like actually if you left a bunch of Indians and Australians in a room together, they'd either start a cricket game, right? They'd either start a cricket game with each other or they'd probably just end up having a, like literally we ended up, um, uh, we ended up spending, you know, like we, we ended up doing things where we ended up spending long, long time, uh, long, long nights on, in deep conversations about things that you'd never really expect people to do. So I feel like that it was the kind of interesting takeaway for me as a person that um, came from a very traditional policy background that thought about these things as great power relations, that this is one thing that I feel like it's going to surprise people because as the Indian population in Australia grows, as Australians, Australians are... Um, one thing you learn when you don't live in Australia is that Australians are incredibly well-traveled. Um, and it's actually like statistically also true. Like a third of our population leaves the country every year, right? Now, maybe all of them go to Bali. I don't know. But you know, I mean, the point is like a third of our population leaves the country. And so the combination of that plus the expanse of the Indian um, diaspora, I think, like, I think that this might be the thing that surprises everyone in terms of strategic relationships. I agree. And it's interesting that you say you find commonalities that you didn't know existed. I think someone told me once that like, it's proven that people bond most effectively when being transported somewhere. 
like if you're on a bus with people or on a plane with people, like the the degree of bonding is a lot stronger than if you were stationary. That could be complete garbage, but I found. I like it. I think it's true, actually. (laughs) Well, it's kind of a nice thing for Uber, isn't it? Maybe that could be. Oh yeah, exactly. (laughs) But I. We've had people. We've had people that have sat together in pool rides, get married to each other. Oh my gosh! It's like the new Tinder. Uber Paul. Don't get, don't get, don't get, don't get, you know, don't give people any kind of crazy. <laughs> I'm sure someone has thought about that. I'm sure, but yeah. But I found that to be very true at um, AIYD. Like spending so much time, almost as much time as we spent in meetings um, on buses together or on trams or on planes. Those were the times when you had conversations and you just found so much commonality with people that, you know, like the surfing example with one of the delegates who runs a surf school in the south of India. And you're just like, oh, my gosh, I, you know, so much common ground that I didn't know existed. Yeah. And um, and, and what I thought was kind of really interesting was how, um, like, the scale at which you could do things, right? So someone wrote a textbook um, someone wrote a textbook which was actually about being able to um, teach kids through fun and games and colouring and a whole bunch of other things, um, ways in which they could be more um, accepting of people of different um, uh, different um, genders, different race, uh, um, racial backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, obviously different socioeconomic statuses because that matters a lot in India. And what was really interesting about it was the way in which, you know, they talk about it as like, oh, I've just got this small project that's in 1,500 schools, right? 1,500 schools will be about 20% of the schools in Australia, right? Like, you know, um, uh, um, uh, it, it was, um, it, and like, it was just the nature in which they were able to sort of scale some of these, these things was really interesting. But your point about buses and trains and things, and that's a hard, like, I had never actually thought about it, but my most interesting conversations were in those, were on those, were in transit, right? Like, yeah. When you sat next to someone on a bus, like you learned the entire life story. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? It's so much more than you do when you're stationary in a conference room where you tend to just have a very surface level conversation. It's yeah. It should be phenomenon. a new product. It should be a new product feature of Uber. Like, thanks for sitting in your Uber pool. Now, please talk to the person next to you. You never know what you'll learn. Oh, my God. I love it. Let's let's make that happen. I'm excited. Which is a nice segue into what does success look like in ten years for you? So I mean that that could be the success. Uh, I imagine it's a lot broader. So ten years from now, what sort of success do you hope to be uh, celebrating? I think one thing that um, one thing that would be really what I hope um, we would learn is that we can actually. Um, the problems that we think are too difficult and too hard to solve and the future of work in particular, um, which is this sort of um, uh, Keynes and others, like Keynes talked about technological unemployment 70 years ago, 80 years ago, right? And he, he wrote this in this fascinating thing called The Letter to My Grandchildren, right? And he basically said that, you know, it might mean that we don't work five days a week. It might mean things, but there's a really big risk that we'll basically go the back, back way. I think there's always two paths in the way in which you might choose um, to solve a policy problem. Um, there's a danger that we could end up with higher unemployment, with more inequality, with less productivity, um, with um, more feeling of disengagement, um, and that, that having an impact the way which you think about trust institutions and the nature of our kind of economies and all those other kinds of ter- terrible things, that dystopian world that everybody's very happy to tell you about. But I think there is actually a way in which we can kind of solve for that. If we make the right sort of tactical decisions, if we think about when should we want to sort of invest in the right 
um, in the right sort of things. We could end up in a situation which we, the automation that we get that we're fearful for gives us the productivity lift to help us maintain and grow living standards that give us basically more options and time to spend more valuably. Like we have more time to spend with our kids and more time to spend with our parents. Like we are now going to be living in a very different time where we have two retired generations alive at the same time. So we'll have a situation which we don't just have to care for our kids, we also have to care for our parents because our parents are caring for their parents. You know? and, so, um, and so I kind of am optimistic that, uh, so, so what does 10 years look like? Is that we, make, we start making the strategic investments to be prepared for that high road rather than you know, this kind of terrible dystopian world in which, I don't know, someone like Clive Owen is the movie star. Oof. <laughs> it always ends up. All every dystopian, terrible movie ends up like with with, with Clive Owen in, in in it. I don't know. I don't mean it's an offense to Clive Owen, but just always kind of. That's so true. But we need like Michelle Obama to be the star. That feels like the opposite of a dystopian movie. <laughs> I think yeah, that's right. Okay, well, that is a fantastic vision and you've shared so many fascinating insights in this interview. So thank you so much for your time. It's been great to have you on the show. Um, thank you very much. I, um, this, was, this was a great honor. So thank you for including me. Mm-hmm.